So beginning a new series this morning called The Unshakable Kingdom. Does anybody feel like our nation is being shaken right now? Those of us who have been um, in Texas for most of our lives probably have never experienced a significant earthquake. To have really been in the middle of that, you probably will have had to have come here today from somewhere else at some point. One of the things you may not know is that Texas actually has an earthquake every few days or so. Um, just the magnitude of them is so small. There have really been two that have been significant in our great state's history, the Republic of Texas. But um, one of them was back in the 30s that happened in El Paso, Texas, and was felt as far away as Dallas. That was a 6.0. Another one uh, in 1995 happened in West Texas area. That was felt all the way as Austin. So periodically, we do have our earthquakes. Just They tend to be not to the degree of those that we see on television and read about that have caused such incredible havoc and destruction. One of the things that if you've ever, if you've ever been through something as dramatic as a severe earthquake or read about it, if you ever read the accounts of people that have been in the middle of it, they will talk about the ground feeling like it was turned to water. That it was up, it was so, so much upheaval. It's twisting and turning. And you will see if you ever watch videos of it, people literally not able to stand. They can't hold on to anything because everything is moving with it. In fact, um, one story I read this week of, of the big Mexico City earthquake years ago, a lady said that the buildings around her were being torn as if they were made out of paper. That's what it is like when the shaking is severe enough. We're in a period of time right now where nationally, with so much unrest, there is so much shaking that it's actually severe enough that pretty much everybody feels it. If you don't feel a little bit shaken right now, it's probably because you just don't care. The only way to, to not see that things are being shaken considerably right now is really to put your head in the sand in the midst of the pandemic, of the protesting, of the rioting, of all of these things, I've heard uh, many people just voice kind of what is happening to our country and, and are things gonna be, are things gonna be okay? I wanna talk to you this morning about where to put your confidence so you can know things are gonna be okay. When the world is shaking, God wants to give us what we're calling an unshakable kingdom. What the book of Hebrews this morning told us, God is giving us a kingdom that cannot be shaken. So can I walk you through a few thoughts this morning? This won't be an incredible, this won't be a deep dive into the ideas of the kingdom this morning. We're just going to sort of put up the framework for the coming weeks and what we're going to begin studying. But the first point I want to make to you this morning is simply this. With our culture in chaos, nothing feels certain. With our culture in chaos, Nothing feels certain. By the way, really bad pastor move, forgot to mention this earlier. At trinitywax.info, we actually have our sermon notes on there now. So if you go to trinitywax.info, you'll see an icon that says sermon notes, and you can follow along there if you like. But with this idea of confidence and uncertainty, you make your plans and I make my plans based on the assumption that things are going to be steady enough, that there is a certain cause and effect that we can depend on in our everyday life right now, that I project tomorrow based on today, 
how things are going today, what I am doing today, and generally feeling that tomorrow's in God's hands, uh, things are going to be reasonably stable, but we're actually in a time where stuff is still in God's hands, but stuff is shifty enough where it's hard to forecast. I've never seen so many internet prophets kind of go radio silent a little bit. Prediction is difficult right now unless you're really speaking from the mind of God. But if you were banking on certain things coming forward, if you are a college student and you're returning to Southwestern this year, you are no doubt hoping to return to familiar rhythms and ways of doing things, and you're looking forward to that. If you're brand new at Southwestern this year, this is probably not the way of going about college that you anticipated of being quarantined and and not being able to hang out here and not being able to hang out there. We're just in a time where nothing in specifics is certain. So where do we find stability? Number two is this. When we trust in things that are shakable, our confidence is shaken too. If you trust in things that are shakable, your confidence will be shaken too. And one of the things that Scripture is always trying to tell us is, hey, you were aliens and strangers in this world. Don't get terribly dependent or comfortable with anything as needed in this world. In fact, we went through the book of James, and James says, I think in chapter 4-ish, where he says, um, look, you guys who say, tomorrow we're going to go do business here, we're going to do this there, we're going to make these big plans. And James says, you don't even know what tomorrow is going to be for you. Instead, you should say, if the Lord wills, then we're going to do this or that. In other words, James is telling you, and he's telling me, Always keep in mind, this world is shakable. Keep in mind the unshakable will and kingdom of God and bank on that and put your confidence there so that you cannot be shaken. Scripture's always reminding us, everything here is temporary. Don't, don't get too at home. Scripture would say the world is fallen, so don't be too terribly shaken whenever it actually feels like it's falling apart because there are going to be seasons where that happens. One benefit, next point, is that our world, whenever it is shaken, that exposes faith in idols. One benefit of our world being shaken is that it exposes faith in idols. And you can always tell if something is an idol in your life by how devastated you are at the idea of losing it. If you feel like if you lost a relationship, if you lost him or you lost her, you would be over if you feel like if you don't get this job, if you don't get this grade, if you can't look forward to this particular future, if you feel like it would all be over unless that thing delivers, there's probably a pretty good chance. I mean, that is the picture scriptural definition of, of idolatry because we're depending on created things to deliver what only God can deliver, which is ultimate confidence, ultimate assurity, ultimate peace. We are made, you are made, I am made to build our lives around something. None of us will live our life not really caring about anything. We will all be devoted to something. And so scripture is trying to get across to us that that something should be the kingdom of God because nothing else is great enough to sit on the throne of your heart. There's an author by the name of um, Herbert Schlossberg. Great name. Everyone say that with me. Schlossberg. But he says, anyone with a hierarchy of values has placed something at its apex, and whatever that is, 
is the God he serves. Everyone who cares about anything cares about something the most. And whatever it is that you care about the most is the God you serve. That's why as parents, we can idolize our children and the future we want for them. And we can, we can not just be worried about them as parents, but we can feel like we ourselves are utter failures or, or we just can't live if they don't do what we hope to see them do. Well, we can't make an idol out of our kids. We can do that with our spouse. We can do that with our job. Anything that is of ultimate importance to you, that is your object of worship. And unless that object is God, then we have an idol. Does that make sense? Hebrews 12, 27. This expression yet once more indicates the removal of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what is not shaken might remain. It can be good if things are shaken, if we're holding on to an idol that we need to let go of. So number three is this. Could it be that our tendency is to want just enough of God to bless our own agendas? Could it be that our tendency, human tendency, is to want just enough of God to bless our own agendas? Jesus told you and I, he said to seek what the kingdom of God? To seek first the kingdom of God. You are like, that's a trick question, isn't it? I'm not going to say it. To seek ye first the kingdom of God and everything else would be added to us. But sometimes we're tempted to try to add in the kingdom of God and just pursue other things that we've decided are most important. And scripture would say, absolutely don't do that. Don't just add in God to your agenda. I've just finished recently kind of a a two month study or so through the book of Jeremiah. And that is tough to walk through. Not just the book, but watching what is happening to the nation of Israel as God sends them people, calling them out, calling them out, trying to point them back to God, and they just won't hear it. But Israel felt like they were going to be just fine because they had the temple. There's like, nothing's really going to happen. We're, we are blessed and highly favored. We're God's people. And so just stop raining on our parade, Jeremiah. And the Lord actually says this. He says, this is what the Lord of armies, the God of Israel says. Do not trust in deceitful words chanting, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. In other words, God to them had become a mantra, like a thoughts and prayers kind of thing. And so whenever they were threatened or whenever life was hard, they had they had a thing they would say, a chant. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. And then they would just kind of go about their days. And Jeremiah is just kind of saying, you can't just say things and expect that to happen, which makes me think of the office. In the office, there's a, there's a, a, the manager of this paper company. His name is Michael Scott, notoriously bad with handling his money. And he is told, given some shaky advice by a guy that knew nothing about it, that the way out was to declare bankruptcy. It's a start over. It's a, it's a get out of jail free card. It's just going to be just declare bankruptcy. All of your problems will go away. And so Michael Scott, with all of his brilliance, thinks that sounds like a good idea. And he walks out of the bank room into the office and goes, I declare bankruptcy. 
One of the accountants talks to him later and goes, you know, you can't just say that and expect anything to happen. And Michael Scott says, I didn't say it, Oscar. I declared it. <laughs> and there are sometimes, there's, there's some jokes to be made about, about spirit-filled Pentecostal people there. I didn't just say it. I declared it. I decreed it. And we just have to be sure that as we are declaring and decreeing, we are seeking first the kingdom of God and not just trying to have a splash of God onto whatever we want to do anyway. Right? And so God tells Jeremiah, as he's speaking through him here, he goes on and says, instead, if you really correct your ways and actions, if you act justly to one another, and God says, if you really try to live like my people, I will make you unshakable, but you can't just add a dash of the temple of the Lord to whatever you want to do and think that everything is going to be okay. That's true on a personal level, and it's true on a national God bless America level. We can't just say it and expect things to happen. So whose agenda is best? Everyone has an agenda. Whose agenda is best? Whether that's personal, your agenda versus God, if the two are, if the two are, are not compatible. We look at nationally right now, everything is a battle of competing agendas. That's every, everyone is, we're at each other's throats over so many different things. And in an election year, we could only expect it to get more intense over the coming months. I would just seek to remind you as my job is, I think, as a pastor, that whether you call yourself a Democrat or Republican, that affiliation should always be subordinate to your affiliation with the kingdom. It has to be. The Democrat vision for America is not identical to the kingdom of God. The Republican vision of America is not identical to the kingdom of God. The libertarian vision of America, or whatever other vision you want to give yourself to, is not identical to the kingdom of God. We are not the party of the donkey. We are not the party of the elephant. What's the libertarian thing? A duck or something? <laughs> we are the party of the Lamb of God. We should want God's agenda. And whenever we line ourselves up with any earthly political party or we make anything primary, we lose our ability to want the kingdom of God first and foremost. Because we feel like we have to back off of godly things because we've gone all in on this other thing and we, and we must support it no matter what. Or we must criticize that no matter what. Let's be kingdom people. Let's be kingdom people. There's only one form of government that we are going to be able to be all in on with no criticisms. And it will be a theocracy. And it will not be totally instituted until the return of Christ at that point. But in the meantime, we've got to want God's agenda. Number four is this. Could it be that God's agenda is his own and his agenda should be ours? And we always have to make sure that we're seeking first his kingdom. You remember this powerful moment in the book of Joshua where Joshua has this vision. The Lord is standing before him. And, and Joshua says, whose side are you on, our side or our enemies? And the Lord says to him, neither, because it is as commander of the Lord's army that I have come. So he's saying, Joshua, 
Whose side are you on? And so could it be that God's agenda is his own and he wants us as kingdom people to own his agenda? It goes without saying, but let's say it. Every kingdom has a king, one that is ultimately in charge. When you're talking about men, that's always a little, I'm I'm not so sure about that. But whenever you're talking about God, he is trustworthy and most qualified to govern the universe. And so he has always wanted you and I to be kingdom people and to live from that. If you remember, like if you go back and read Genesis, the early chapters, God says, let's create man in our image and let them rule. From the very beginning, God is using like kingdom language. Let them rule. And we can only rule rightly if we're submitted to the agenda of the king. If we want what God wants, then we'll do what God wants. So we've always got to want to seek first the kingdom of God and his what? Righteousness. We've got to want what he wants because then we can be sure that we will want the right things. We don't just want to do things and ask God to bless it. We want to do what God would bless. And if we're doing that, we can be sure since we are receiving verse 28, a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Let us be thankful. So in your areas of of service, in your areas of influence, work, school, friends, whatever, God actually wants you and I to be totally consumed with introducing his kingdom into the midst of those things. And you may be thinking, doesn't that just sound a little too like overly zealous? Will that not make me the weird guy at work? Well, I guess you can do it weirdly, but you don't have to. You can want the kingdom of God to to seek ways to introduce that and to to, to bring his love. You know who says this really well? You'll never guess. C.S. Lewis. Look at you. You're smart. C.S. Lewis says this. If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for this present world were just those who thought the most of the next. The apostles themselves who set foot on the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade. Little known thing. You should know that. The abolishing of the slave trade. These were, these were kingdom endeavors. This was a Christian moment all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective at this one. Aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. This seems a strange rule. We shall never save civilization as long as civilization is our main object. We must learn to want something else even more. You will never have the country that you want as long as the country is an end in itself. You have to want something else more. And what is that? The kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. And beginning to wrap up here, Jesus came to earth not just to offer forgiveness of sin, but to inaugurate a kingdom. To inaugurate a kingdom. That's a weird word, isn't it? If you think about inauguration, that's something that happens whenever whenever a president is elected. 
there will be one this year, regardless of who of who gets elected on January 20th. So next year, actually, there will be an inaugural speech. And that moment is where the leader expresses his leadership vision for the coming period of time. Sometimes we really underestimate what it was that Jesus came to do. We think sometimes that Jesus just came and said, I can offer you forgiveness. And after that, stop looking at bad stuff and go be a good person. That's way too simplistic. Jesus came to inaugurate a kingdom. In fact, if you read the Gospels, in like three of the four Gospels, the first ministry words ascribed to Jesus, he mentions the kingdom of God. In the book of Matthew, he mentions the kingdom of God 50 plus times. It was like his favorite thing to talk about. And from the beginning, he said, Mark chapter 1, Jesus went to Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time is fulfilled and the what? The kingdom of God has come near. Then he says, repent and believe the good news. Get on board with the kingdom. Luke chapter 4, you know, people want Jesus to stay, and, and he's talking to them, and he says, it's necessary for me to proclaim the good news about the kingdom of God in the other towns also. That is why I have come. Jesus did not just go about preaching forgiveness. He went about preaching a kingdom, redemption of the entire world. And the, the gospel that means what? What does gospel mean? Good news actually has its origin, has a phenomenal origin story. In 31 BC, history lesson in closing, um, those, those of us who ever heard of Julius Caesar or you went through any plays or did any reading about it, you know that the assassination of Julius Caesar just sort of plunged the Roman Empire into anarchy. And so sort of two powers rose up out of that, and 13 years of civil war ensued between Octavian and Mark Antony. And so you've got these two armies that are in each other's throats seeking to, to win position for the empire, and it goes on and on and on and on. And everything culminates at the naval battle of Actium. And so these two navies are at each other's throats, and finally a divisive um, blow, a decisive blow is dealt. And so Octavian ends up winning. And so out of that, forerunners are sent throughout the empire and the city of Rome that has been sort of on this knife's edge, you know, which way is this thing going to go? How's it going to end up? And Octavian's forerunners come in and say, good news, Octavian is triumphant. And so as they came in, they're proclaiming that's where this term for gospel actually came from, declaring like a king has been victorious, and now everything is going to be different because of what has happened. But everything didn't get different overnight. It was actually two years before Octavian came back to the Roman Empire, he had to go and do these sort of mop-up battles everywhere. And But that period of time, those two years, people are just sort of living by word of the good news of something dramatic that had happened, and everything was going to be different as a result. And so whenever early Christians began using this term good news, does this not point to that Jesus came to do more than just preach simply forgiveness? Forgiveness with a kingdom. And so Jesus came preaching the good news of the kingdom. The king is here.
but it's a totally different kingdom. It's not a political kingdom because just as Octavian won his decisive battle in at sea in a naval battle, Jesus's decisive battle was won on the cross. When it looked like he lost, you would have thought that, well, they really shut that guy up. And Scripture actually uses the language that, that he silenced the powers of darkness, triumphing over them on the cross. And so his resurrection shows that he did way more than just die. His resurrection validates everything that he ever said about who he is, the power he has. And right now, we're sort of in that in-between time. The king has won a decisive victory. Hear the good news. That's what this is. When we send missionaries out, when we plant churches with what we're trying to do here, we're declaring the good news of the kingdom of God. That's what we're about. And during this time, these are mop-up victories as you send this news all over the world to those who will receive it, and ultimately the king will return, and he will set up court, and everything will be ultimately and finally unshakable. That's the good news of the kingdom. And so in these coming weeks, we're just going to unpack what all the kingdom means. Okay, what all does that mean? We're going to spend all of our time there. And it's good news. Like spoiler alert, the aims of the kingdom of God are to make everything new, to make everything different. That's what the kingdom of God is about. That's what we're about. The final thought is just this. Since God's kingdom is unshakable, we can have unshakable confidence in his words. Since God's kingdom is unshakable, we can have unshakable confidence in his words.